Well, I trust you have all learned how to greet one another in Japanese. If you've uh, had a chance to talk to Bree, maybe she could instruct us. But uh, it is great to be together in the house of the Lord. If you were able to be with us last week, you heard that we're starting today embarking on a six-part series from the book of Nehemiah. And this had come out of a season of prayer as pastors and as elders, as leaders, and saying, being before the Lord and saying, Lord, what is it that you want our congregation to know about you and to be doing for you? And out of that came this, this heart for making sure that we're moving forward as his disciples, as people that love him or following hard after him, and saying, Lord, I don't want anything to get in in the way. But if I'm really honest, there is stuff that keeps getting in my way. There's all those, those things from the world, the flesh, and the devil, which still try to squeeze me into its mold. And so if I'm really, really honest, then I start to look at some of the, some of the destruction that's gone on in my life. Sometimes I've caused it. Other times, other people have caused it. But I don't want to live in that anymore. We all have those places, I think, that are kind of under construction, if you will, or under reconstruction. And then many of us are called to be some kind of leader in some sort of organization. Maybe you're the head of a family, a grandparent or a parent. Maybe you have a team at work that you oversee. And if we start to think about how can I be God's person, how can I respond to his calling there, we, we're both in, at one hand excited and on the other hand challenged, and then we get really aware of the times that we've fallen short, the times that we've kind of prioritized our own ego over the good of the people that we're actually trying to serve and called to serve. And then it applies to us even as a church. Lord, what, are you, what is it that you're rebuilding here? We, we look at ministries that we don't have anymore at Abundant Life, but we know the need is still out there. Marriage and family would be a good example. Lord, what is it that you're calling us to rebuild there? And we, want, we don't want to be presumptuous about that. We don't want to say that we know the answer, but we want to learn from Nehemiah some of the key principles about how God leads us through times of destruction, times where things that were once up here are now down there. And again, we just want to come before him. This was Nehemiah's situation. We're not, you, know, you may not know about his story. We'll, we'll unfold that as we go along. But, but in essence, he was an Israelite who had been in exile, and God put a call on his heart in a very dramatic way, which we'll read about in a moment, to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, walls that had been broken down by the sin of the Israelites themselves, and God's judgment had come upon them. So God had used the armies around them to bring his own sense of punishment, if you will, his own sense of correction to them. And so Nehemiah is actually called to, to help restore that beautiful nation called Israel, the apple of God's eye. And in the same way, both that, that, that God calls us to be his instruments of restoration in our circles around us at whatever level. And so that's the heart that's informing this series on Nehemiah. And that's what excites us. As I said, it's six parts. It'll start today. It'll go through November 1st. If you're an automatic calendar kind of person, you realize that's actually seven weeks, not six. That's because there's going to be a break in the middle. So we have the first three parts, and then we have a guest speaker, Brian Loritz, who will be privileged to hear on the 11th of October. And then the uh, other three, the last three parts, four, five, and six, will be done after that. So six-part series, it's just a privilege to be able to, to kick that off. So 
Let's go ahead and start. I'm going to be in Nehemiah today, just chapter 1. I'm not going to read the whole chapter now. I'm going to read the first four verses, and we'll go sort of bit by bit. So if you've got your Bible, you can open with me to Nehemiah, and I'm just reading the first four verses to start. Words should be on the screen. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. As I said, we'll continue. Have you ever asked somebody, called up a friend and said, hey, what are you doing? And they're bored and so they answer, I'm just staring at the wall. Or maybe you've said that in reply to somebody. Maybe your parent has said, what are you doing? And you don't want to do your chores, so you say, I'm just staring at the wall. When you think about that phrase, it's easy to overlook, actually, what walls do. So let's think about walls for a moment. When you have walls in your house, they're, already, they're providing a boundary. Your house is defined by square footage, and that footage is defined by walls. So they provide a boundary. They provide living space for you to live the way that you feel most comfortable living. There's that interior place. You're in your walls. You can do kind of what you want. Your family has a sense of belonging. Your friends have a sense of belonging. They go to your house. They're inside your walls. And family members are, you know, able to come and go freely because they belong. Some members of your extended family may not come and go so freely, right? Because they don't really belong, or they do belong, but they, they're kind of wearing out their welcome. But walls provide a certain sense of belonging. Walls provide a place of boundary. Walls provide also security. They provide safety. When you're inside your house, when you're inside your walls, you can shut the world out behind you, and you're okay, and you're safe. If you don't feel really safe, you can get a dog to be inside your walls and be feeling even safer. But walls provide safety. Walls provide security. Walls provide a sense of belonging for those that are inside. Walls provide boundaries. And this is how walls of our house operate. This is how the walls, city walls are operating in Bible times. Any city worth its salt had a wall around it so that those citizens that belonged to that city would feel safe, so that they wouldn't be vulnerable to attack, so that those citizens that belonged in the city were free to transact their business, sit at the city gates, carry on the business of what they were supposed to be doing, so that people had that sense of belonging. Hey, I'm part of Jericho. Hey, I'm part of Jerusalem. Hey, I'm part of Nineveh. All cities had walls back in those days. And so it's not like Jerusalem's anything special, but what is it that we just read? What is it about Jerusalem's walls that are such a big deal to Nehemiah? And you have to have a, a brief history, a sort of an, you know, lesson about that, because the walls that Jeremiah, excuse me, that, that Nehemiah is hearing about are broken down. They're broken about 150 years earlier by Nebuchadnezzar as a result of, of Israel's sin. God's judgment was visited upon them through, the, the, through two conquering armies, first Assyria, then the Babylonians, taking off the Israelites out of their promised land and into exile. 
And so, even though Nehemiah is an Israelite, and he is in Susa, he's not in Jerusalem. He's not home where he belongs. He's actually a cupbearer to the king. So he's got a good job, he's got a comfortable life, but he's not necessarily where God has originally called him to be, where God has purposed his people to be in Jerusalem. And even that, and then he hears about the destruction of the walls. He, and he just sits down and he weeps. He weeps because why? Because his people, the people that he's a part of, are vulnerable. Because they are insecure. Because they are under threat. Because anybody else can come and drag off the remnant that's still there. There still were a few Israelites there. Ezra had gone back a few years earlier to rebuild the temple. So there were some Jews that were there, but not everybody had returned from exile. Even though God said, I will punish you if you disobey me, it's corrective punishment. And he said, that will not be the final word, but I'm also a God who restores. And if you read Jeremiah, where both Jerusalem's destruction is foretold, so is Jerusalem's restoration. We have a God who corrects us that we might live holy lives. We have a God who chastises us so that we would return to him. And as he gets our attention through some really tough times and some hard circumstances, so he sends us resources that we need to be restored. And when we talk about Nehemiah over these six weeks, we're going to talk about the God who is restoring, who is rebuilding, who is making new things in our life. And when I say rebuilding, I don't want that to preclude the fact that God is doing some very new things in some of our lives. So not everything is a rebuild. Sometimes we've got new construction going on here that's also of God. And so hear, hear that in a broad spectrum. But God is calling us to rebuild things in our life. And Nehemiah is, is greatly distressed because it's not just the walls that are down, but it's the walls of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, before Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered it, was David's city. It was a royal city. Scripture calls it a holy city. When David became king, he, after a while he moved his capital from Hebron to Jerusalem. And then shortly after that, he actually brought the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, into Jerusalem. So it both is the political center of the life of Israel, the nation of Israel, and it's the spiritual center. And so it's the big deal. When you're a Jew, you want to at least go to Jerusalem. You want to understand Jerusalem is where your heart is. And so when he hears that the walls have been destroyed, he knows that there's a whole spiritual reason behind that. And again, Jeremiah just prophesies that, that when God, well, Moses, you've got to go back to Moses. When Moses is told by the Lord, hey, I'm going to give you this promised land because I'm a holy and covenant and faithful God. And you can be in that. You'll have protection from your enemies. You'll have prosperity on your fields. You'll have just the life of, of blessing that I plan for you if... You stay connected to me if you don't follow after other gods, if you remain faithful. But if you know anything about the history of Israel, you know that that was easier said than done. That in fact, other gods did capture their heart and their imagination. And as a result, they suffered the consequence. Now in the destruction of Jerusalem and in the exile. So this is why Nehemiah is so heartbroken. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down. Jerusalem, here's the best way to think of this. Jerusalem is no longer the city that it was created to be. It's not living up to the plan that God had for it originally. It is no longer the political center of Israel. It is no longer the spiritual center. 
And our lives can be like that too. If we're not being the people that we know God has called us to be, then I can tell you God wants to do a rebuild. God wants to do, I'll kind of modernize it, He wants to do a reboot. There's something that we need to be doing. What is that? It could be different from, it, it, it will be different for different people. It'll be things, you know, perhaps it's just some part of your, that old man that keeps rearing its head. Maybe you're like, man, why do I keep saying that stuff that I'm saying with my tongue? I keep wounding people that I care about. Well, what's with my temper? It goes off far too easily, and it's a lot louder than I want it to be. Why, why is that anger thing still there? Why do I spend money that I don't have on things I really don't need? Or as they say, to impress people I really don't like. Sometimes we just get into these places, we're like, Lord, I don't want to be there. And, and there's a destruction that goes on. There's, there's things we're not living up to the area, our, the places that God has given us. When we spend money that we don't have, we not only impact our lives financially, but if we're supporting other people, we, we impact their lives financially. There's consequences to saying, I'm going to live my way and not God's ways. And so, this can find you at any place as individuals, again, as, as part of a family, we as a church, and we want to be very connected to how God would be leading us. We want to learn from Nehemiah in this case. We want to ask God, Lord, would you start your rebuilding with us? Would you show us some new things that we haven't seen? We want to be really deliberate about that. That's what's on the heart of us as pastors, as elders. And so, we're looking at Nehemiah, and in this first chapter, I want, want us to notice three things here this morning about how we get started, because this is really the starting point. If God's got some rebuilding in your life, what is that? If, if you think that there's some rebuilding to be done or something new to get done, how do you get started? So what did we just we read? We read those first four verses in Nehemiah. You see, really the first principle about getting started, Nehemiah hears this, this awful news. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. First idea, first principle, first thing to get started, whatever, wherever you are, Whatever level of destruction you think you've experienced, whether you caused it or other people caused it, you want to go to God in prayer. Now, that's not a revelation, I hope, for us, but it's something that we often avoid doing. We'll just act out emotionally, we'll call a bunch of people, we'll do everything but go to God in prayer. So notice that Nehemiah is emotionally gutted by this thing. It's just like news that hits him, bang, smack in the head. And he's devastated. And so he's weeping, and then he's turning to the Lord in prayer. And he's in, he's not, it's not a quick prayer. It's not 10 minutes in the morning. He is sitting there. It says he's fasting. When you fast, you're showing that you really mean business with the Lord. You want no other distractions, no other things that are a regular part of your routine to come between you and God in this season. So he's fasting. He's mourning because this is news that's, that's worthy of, of just being sorrowful at. And he's praying to God. So first thing that we do, whatever we're working on, come to the Lord in prayer. Lord, help me understand what's going on in my life. Because when I said, you know, what is it that, that's on your life, some of you guys know right away what God's already working on you about. You already, you, it's been going on for days or months or years, and you came in here and like, great, I'm looking forward to hearing some, some ideas about how Nehemiah conquered this. Some of you may not know 
But here's, here's a clue about how to find that out. Ask this question when you go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, what is breaking your heart that needs to break my heart? Lord, what are you weeping about over my life that I need to start weeping about? Because we're people. We are a little self-deceptive. There's things that we cry about that God's not crying about. Now, if Cal had lost yesterday, he might have been crying. I would have been crying. But fortunately, the Cal Bears pulled it out. Yay! Stanford, okay, I'm a little bit closer to Stanford. Stanford pulled it out, beat SC. Those would be things that a good sports fan might weep or cry over. God really care about that? Not in terms of what we're talking about. Not in terms of being his son or his daughter. But then there's things that, that we don't cry about that he's weeping over. Those little sins that we tolerate. Those little things that are just us. Those little practices that we think are just kind of innocent. Those are the things that God is saying, I want to get your attention about that. That's what he's speaking to. So what is it? It starts with God. God, what are you crying about? What are you weeping over? What are you sad about in my life that you need to call to my attention? See, Nehemiah was already dialed into the, the place of Jerusalem. And so he was weeping over the things that God was weeping about. But that's not always our case. So ask him, Lord, what is it that you want me to, to really be aware of in my life? What is it that you want me to be aware of in my leadership, in my family life? What is it that you want me to be aware of as I'm a part of this church that I need to really hear from you? Where, where is the devastation going on in, in the way I do things? Am I holding grudges? Am I spending too much time just thinking about how to do payback to people that have offended me? Lord, where's that old man breaking out? What do I do with that anger that I spoke of earlier? So some of you know that already. Some of you don't know what God wants to do in your life yet. Some of you are like, Lord, I'm, I'm like Nehemiah in the citadel of Susa. I'm, I'm having a good life. It's okay being the cupbearer to the king. But what is it that you want me to do? Is there something new that you've got going for me? Is there a new, something new for me to start doing? Ask him that. I mean, that's something as leaders and elders, pastors, we want to be very intentional about. Lord, praise you for this opportunity to serve you. But what is it that you're doing with abundant life in this season? Is there something new that you need us to do? Is there something current that you need us to reinforce? I don't want to presume to know the answer. All I want to say is that, you know, the first step is you come to the Lord in prayer. And if you heard Elder Arshel talked last week when he was leading the section of prayer. He said, this Nehemiah series will be an opportunity for us to be before the Lord in prayer. We want to make that church wide. We want every growth group to be having an extended time of prayer. If you're not in a growth group, this would be a good opportunity to do that. Just to have people to pray with you. Just so that you can pray alongside of them. It starts with prayer to the Lord. Lord, help me fix stuff that you want to rebuild in my life. Lord, show me something new that you're calling me to. And then as, as you pray that prayer, guess what? He'll start to answer that. He'll start to answer in, I think, in kind of organic ways. I, you might get a big, you, know, you might hear some big kind of macro news like about uh, homelessness, say, in the county. In fact, there's an article in the Mercury News this past week about uh, the fact that the county is now uh, budgeted more money to create more units so more people can have housing. Praise God. More people can have walls. More people can have security. Fewer people will be vulnerable. It's like, great, I'm pleased that God has moved some people, whether they know it or not, just to provide 
a greater measure of security for the homeless population in the county. But that still sounds kind of government-y, doesn't it? It still sounds kind of like something out there. A few days earlier, I'd actually had the privilege of attending a dinner put on by Bayshore Christian Ministries, where one of the staff members was talking about uh, the privilege that she had to mentor a young lady who was actually, she and her mom had to deal with homelessness sort of throughout her high school years. Sometimes it was just sort of crashing out on a couch at a family member's or at a friend's house for a while. Other times it was just them two in a car in the Safeway parking lot until they got chased out. No walls, no real security, real vulnerability. We can move from something that's out there called homelessness in Santa Clara to names and faces of a mother and a daughter who are actually struggling with homelessness, who are actually needing people to come alongside, maybe to provide them a home, certainly to encourage them. Let God break your heart for the things that are breaking His. Let Him put real people and real situations and real names into your life. That's one of the easiest ways to do that. If you're thinking like, Lord, how, wh where's the place of start for me to start? Just be open to that. So come before the Lord. Pray. Lord, show me what you want me to see. Who can I be your vessel of love and mercy and support to? So that's the first principle. Go to God in prayer. The second one comes from verses 5 through 8 of chapter 1. I'm going to read those now. Now this is Nehemiah starting his prayer. Beginning in verse 5. Then I, Nehemiah, said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sin we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. That's five through seven. I'll leave it there. Here's the second principle. If you want to understand what God wants to rebuild in your life so that you can be that blessed city, if you want to use that, again, the Jerusalem metaphor, if you can, so that you're the person that he created you to be, so that you're the organization that he has intended to thrive, so that you're the church that's taking ground for the kingdom, if you want to do that, you've got to come clean before God. You've got to be really honest. Look at that verse, verse 6 and 7. Nehemiah is confessing his sin before God. He's coming clean before God. He says, I confess the sin that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Look at that confession. He's acknowledging that God's ways are right. Confession at, at a basic level is agreeing that God's way is the right way. And that what we've been doing is our way and therefore the wrong way. That's confession in its essence. And that he is sorry for that. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed your commands, the decrees that you gave your servant Moses. In other words, I knew what your scripture said. I knew what I was supposed to do, but I didn't do it. Do we really say that to the Lord? Do we say that and mean that? Do we say that as many times as it takes to make sure that we stay righteous before him? That we don't presume on His grace, which makes us righteous? Maybe we're, we just get part of that prayer right. Maybe we're confessing the sins of the Israelites, those other guys. You know, Lord, I confess the sins of my family members. I confess the sins of my work colleagues. confess the sins of my spouse. 
Lord, if you would make them not sin against me, I would not sin anymore. Make them holy that I might be holy, Lord. That's our confession. Let me tell you, that is not a confession. That's called passing the buck. That's called blaming other people. That's called not really coming clean with God. When you come clean, you come clean like, Lord, here I am. Search me, O Lord. Know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Taking notes, Psalm 139, verse 24. Well, 23 and 24. You've got to become clean before the Lord and say, Lord, help me understand what I've been doing wrong. Help me to just be honest about it. We don't like being straight up with God, do we? We, we, we not only blame other people, we're just in denial about our own stuff most of the time. Well, that wasn't bad. It's like a like kind of a fender bender on the street. Usually there's a traffic officer who's trying to wave you past it. Nothing to see here. It's not bad. Keep going. And so when we commit sins against other people, we're like waving people past, not confessing. Nothing to see here. You're not hurt. That didn't bother you too much. Just keep going. We're in denial oftentimes about the way our sin impacts other people. One of my uncles used to say stuff like that. You know, as a kid, you're kind of raised and you, you, you get hit playing football or, you know, you get punched and he's like, you're not hurt, get up. Like, great, yeah. And so we as men especially can say that to those around us. Our spouse, you're not hurt, get up. Kids, you're not hurt, get up. Well, you say that enough and, the, and you're just denying the fact that you're hurting people. You've got to go before God, you've got to say, Lord, am I hurting people? And believe me, it's not your definition of whether you're hurting them. It's God's. Look at, look at who Nehemiah is confessing to. He says, Lord, I've offended you. Yes, I've offended other people, but the, the offense first and foremost is against the Lord. If we know that, then that will be very sobering to us. So whether your spouse acknowledges that you've hurt her or not, or him or not, the fact is that if you've offended God, that's what you really need to be in touch with. So... But when we confess, what does God do? He starts his restoration process. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But don't stop there. I, too many Christians kind of use that as a little quick sort of drive-through, drive-through confession. 1 John 1, 9, may I have your order? 1 John 1, 9, can I have your confession? 1 John 1, 9. God wants you to take another look. He will cleanse you, but He wants you to take another look. Why is it that you spend money that you don't have? Well, what's going on for you? It's not that you know, you're going to hear that it's right to do that. It's still you know, contrary to how He wants you to live. But you've got to understand what's going on. What is it about retail therapy that really gets to me? You know, why do I really like that? Why do I prefer going to the mall than spending time with God? And if you peel that back a little bit, you begin to find, if I talk to people, it's like, you know what, if I'm really honest before God, when I go to the mall, when I spend money I don't have, when I go to the dealer showroom, I feel alive. I, you know, if you know my story, not my personal story, but they're saying, if you know my story, I didn't grow up with a lot. And I'm tired of not growing up with a lot. I'm tired of having friends, classmates, neighbors two blocks over, rich relatives, who don't have the same challenges and difficulties and hardships that I had to grow up with. And so for a few minutes, when I go to the mall, I'm like them. I'm part of the normal company. So on one hand, you understand how that's operating. But then you've got to take that to the Lord and say, Lord, you've not, that's not your calling on my life, to be raised like some of those other people. I don't have to live out of a place of envy. 
but I got to take my hurt, the place, you know, place of what I just feel kind of devalued because of other people. I got to take that to you. And I need you to work on my heart. And as he's able to do that real interior deep work, he's, you're, he's able to restore you. This doesn't feel good. You ever had deep cleaning at the dentist? Oh, I hate that. I, you know, it's hard enough just getting the dental hygienist to, you know, don't, eh, can't you just blow on it? Do you really have to pick at it and stuff? So, but then they do deep cleaning, which costs money and hurts more. And as long as they really get down in the gums and like, oh, I hate this. Some of us need that in our hearts, spiritually speaking. And so when I say come before the Lord, come clean with him, you're just like, Lord, whatever you need to do to make me the person that you've called me to be, to restore me to that, to, to restore me to the place that you've always designed me to be, do it. Please, Lord, do it. And he will start to speak to you through his word, through his Holy Spirit. And you'll receive that and you'll drink that in and that will be encouraging. But he'll also speak to you through other people. That may not be so encouraging. Because other people don't necessarily know how to come at us. Galatians 6.1, Paul says to the Galatians, because he's interested in them sharpening one another, encouraging one another. He says, if any of you is caught in a sin, you have lived by the Spirit, should restore him gently. But some of us have been on the receiving end of being condemned harshly. We're called to restore gently, but instead we're condemned harshly. And so when you see a brother or sister coming at you, he's like, oh no, please, send me an email. Send me a verse. Better yet, just send me a verse. Please don't speak into my life any more than just the verse. I just need a verse. But I'll tell you, God has put some people in your life who love you, who care about you, who are his instrument for that season to speak directly about some way in which he wants to build you up. He wants to restore what has been torn down. I had a, when Vicky and I were first married in the first church that we went to, we met an older couple, about 10 years older than we were, that had a heart for discipleship, a heart for mentoring couples. We were privileged to be mentored by them. And so we'd meet every week, and we would go over scripture and principles for marriage, and I was liking it, and Vicky was liking it, and we liking this couple because they had our interest at heart. I'm like, this is great. And then one night after the time the guy took me aside and he said can I speak to you sure and uh, and he said you know I've noticed an attitude in your heart which isn't good it's not right the implication was it'll be destructive if you don't deal with it destructive to your marriage and I knew what that attitude was. I wasn't like, whoa, how do you, you know, what are you talking about? No, I knew exactly what he was talking about. But Vicky really either hadn't noticed or hadn't complained, so how bad could it be? But I love the fact that this man had enough care for me to come and to say, this is, I see this going on in your heart, and you need to deal with that. Like, you're right, I do need to deal with that. And it wasn't like I had instant victory. But you know what God was doing through my friend? He was putting like kind of one of those you know, flashing light road signs there when, you know, when the freeway is being worked on, they put a little sign that's flashing light saying caution, saying watch out, saying slow down, saying pay attention to this hazard. That's what he was putting in my life. And so when that attitude came up in my interaction with Vicky, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember what my friend told me. And so God just used that, called me back to that from time to time. And I'm so thankful, even to this day, I can remember that. Some of you are called 
to be that kind of person in those people that are in your circle. Now, I'm not talking a total stranger. I'm not talking about don't go out to the coffee station here after church and say, the Lord gave me a word for you. You don't have any relationship with them. You know nothing about their life. Don't do that. But rather, if there's somebody in your group or somebody in your family who you've shown that you love and you care about, then you pray about that opportunity and you ask God for the words. But that is Galatians 6, 1 being lived out. That's helping people come clean with God. The third principle, and we can only do three in the time that we have, is found from verses 8 to 11, and that closes our chapter. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, the king. And I was a cupbearer to the king. Here's the principle that's illustrated here. If you want to grow, if you want God to restore those things, to rebuild things in your life or in your ministry, then connect with God's mercy and His might. Get in touch with the fact that we have a merciful Lord who doesn't hold our sins against us forever, but His mercy is never-ending. His mercies are new every morning. Get in touch with His mercy and His might. Look at verse 9. His... Well, the prayer that, that Nehemiah is praying, in verse 9 he says, But if you return to me, quoting the Lord's words to Moses, and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I mean, you ever tried to find something on the horizon, you can barely see it. And if it goes over the horizon, you can't see it anymore. However far away they are, the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. And no matter how bad we've messed it up, no matter how destroyed our walls are, God's in the restoration business. Is that great? Is that good news? Yeah, that is. That's fantastic news. But we have to connect with that merciful God. You know, too often we don't connect with that. Too often we don't connect with a God who is merciful, who calls us back, who's willing to restore, but rather we still stay in touch with our condemnation that He has freed us from. And so we don't change. We think, you know what, I can't change. I'm always going to have this temper. I'm always going to have this anger. I'm always going to want to go to the mall. I'm just never going to be really anybody different. Thank God for His grace. But I'm telling you the destructive effects of that prolonged over time will be there. So that's why He wants us to be more like Him. That's why He wants us to change. That's why He's calling us back from the farthest horizon. Don't live under the condemnation of your, of your past, but experience the joy of the freedom that His mercy brings. We just were prone to hang out with our captors, not our rescuer. 1973, in a suburb of Stockholm, Sweden, in August, some bank robbers went into a bank, took a bunch of bank employees hostage, held them hostage for about six days while they negotiated with the authorities. During the standoff, the victims, the bank employees, became emotionally attached to their captors. 
They rejected assistance from the government authorities that were there to help them at one point, and even defended their captors after they were freed from their six-day ordeal. This bizarre, weird kind of psychological thing came down in, in psychology as the Stockholm Syndrome. It's where you identify more with your captors than, than with those who want to rescue you. And let's be really honest, there are times that we, even though we have the name of Christ, identify more with our past, the things that have defined us in the past, the things that people have told us that weren't plugged into the Lord, the, the ways that people have beat us down and have, have leveled our own walls. Maybe some of you never had walls that even really got built in terms of security, in terms of knowing who you are in Christ. And so we still think of ourselves in the same old way. We still think of ourselves the way our captors defined us. Not the way the Lord who rescued us has actually made us and called us to be. And so when Nehemiah says, get in touch with God's mercy as he was, know that he is making you a new person, a, each of us a new person, us as a church, a new church in many different ways. He's making us new, not the same. And we want to be crying out for that, Lord, Bring us back to the place that you've always intended. Show us your mercy. Lord, I receive your mercy. And then when, as you receive his mercy, then receive his might. Verse 10, he, uh, Nehemiah is saying, They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Is God's strength any less strong today than it was with Israel back then? Is, is he any less mighty in our life? No. Why is it that we don't believe that? No, we have to embrace it. Lord, by your mercy and your might, I can, be I can have the things restored that need to be restored. I can do the new thing that you're calling me to do. I can't do it in myself. I wouldn't even try to do it in myself. But I can do it by you, by your help. Does he help Nehemiah? Yeah, he does. Here's a spoiler alert for the rest of the series. Nehemiah actually builds the walls. He gets it done. 52 days. But we're going to find out how God leads him step by step, how he deals with the opposition that comes against him, how he deals with the distractions, how he works with team, with a people, how he works with authority. These are all things that God wants us to understand so that we understand what it means to rebuild. God's restoration of our lives began with who he is. His covenant love and His covenant faithfulness. Just as it did with Jerusalem, so it is with our life. He intended Jerusalem to be His holy city. He called David to make it His capital. He called David to put the Ark of the Covenant in there. And when they were unfaithful, He provided some chastisement. And they were exiled. They could not be in that holy city anymore because they were no longer holy. But that wasn't the last chapter in Jerusalem's history because now he's raising up Nehemiah to restore those walls, to provide security for Israel, for the Israelites to come back and be a people once again in Jerusalem. And later on we find out that they do come back as a result of that, as a result of the temple being rebuilt and as a result of the walls being rebuilt. But that's not the last chapter in Jerusalem's history, is it? That later on we find that that Jerusalem is restored. There is a, a temple that's built. By the time Jesus comes, God wrapped up in flesh, he comes to Jerusalem because he knows that they have actually once again lost track of who God is. Rather than following after him, they become disobedient. And so they have this sort of gloss, these, these kind of pretend guys called Pharisees and rulers who actually don't know God, but they claim to know God. And, and Jesus is saying, no, I am really God. I am the one if you want to know the Heavenly Father, then you look to me. 
But what do they do in Jerusalem to that person, to that message? They kill the messenger. They kill God wrapped up in flesh. In Jerusalem, this holy city now becomes the place of Christ's death. You didn't think Jerusalem could fall any farther when you read Nehemiah, but it falls farther some centuries later. It's the place where Christ is crucified, but he's only dead for three days. And then Jerusalem becomes the place of resurrection. And then Jerusalem becomes the place where the church is birthed. The place where God is saying, no longer do I want just the Israelites in the world to come into Jerusalem, but I'm now sending you out as representatives of the kingdom throughout this world. Starts in Jerusalem. God has always known what he's going to do with his holy city. He has always had a plan with it. For it. the schemes of the enemy, no matter how bad, and they culminated in the, in the crucifixion of the Lord, would not prevail. God's plan for us, God's plan for you, God's plan for whatever group you're in, will not prevail against the enemy's schemes. The only thing that will thwart it is our own unbelief. Our own sense of, I'm just going to be like I always have been. I can't change. I don't need to change. God, I don't, I'm not really paying attention to what you're calling me to. I pray that that isn't any one of our hearts or our attitudes. I pray that this, this series in Nehemiah would lift our hearts, would lift us once again to seeing what God can do in us and through us. Not only as people to restore things that have been lost or destroyed, making things new that we never thought could be made new. And we as a church, as we pray about this, as we seek God out, I don't mean just leaders, I mean all of us. I want everybody to bear down in prayer and say, Lord, please show us what you're doing new. Show us what you're rebuilding. Show us what you want us to build. Let us never be the same. So I just commend Nehemiah to your attention. Hey, feel free to read ahead. Next week, we're going to be in chapter 2. Start looking at how God is using Nehemiah in our lives. Start, come with a heart of expectation. Come, I just close by saying, come with that sense of, Lord, what, what needs to break my heart? Lord, help me to come clean. Lord, I trust in your mercy and I trust in your might to get me through this. Let's do that in the days ahead. Amen? Yeah. Amen. All right.